Well, some of you who've been coming to the evening service may be thinking, Ezekiel, where, where did Matthew go? We've been in Matthew for, for two years, and we didn't finish yet. Where, why are we doing Ezekiel? Well, for those of you who remember, Matthew 16 through 20, the passage that we've been meditating on for the last couple of weeks, and which we will continue to meditate on in the coming weeks, Lord willing, has a specific focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I've mentioned in chapter 16 and chapter 17 and in chapter 20, Jesus is explicitly promising and proclaiming that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of men and to die and to rise again. He is saying we must go from from Galilee into Judea and then eventually to Jerusalem because that is where he is going to accomplish the mission which he came for, to save his people from their sins. And we've been meditating on that and thinking of ways that we can apply it, of course, to the ethics that Jesus has been providing, ethics related to money or ethics related to family. And hopefully some of you remember that. But when we think about the concept of the resurrection, this is not something that that entirely came about new in the New Testament. The, The resurrection has actually been something that in seed form has been promised throughout the Old Testament. Now, when I say throughout, I don't mean in every book or, or, or in every section, but I do mean there are specific places where the resurrection is talked about. And one of those that is most prominent is Daniel 12, 1 and 2, so I encourage you to read that if you're wondering what the Old Testament has to say about the resurrection, but it's brief. The most vivid, uh, the, the section with the most imagery, uh, the section that ties in the majority of the, the Old Testament story into it is actually the story of Ezekiel 37. And Ezekiel 37, as some of you are aware, is what's called the, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Ezekiel 37 is famous because these bones that we just heard about uh, in this vision, they, they slowly come back together. And it's essentially, these people come back to life. They are raised from the dead. Well, This theme, though, of resurrection in the Valley of Dry Bones is intentionally structured in such a way for readers of the Old Testament, the original audience of Ezekiel, to hear echoes of Eden throughout the Valley of Dry Bones. Echoes of Eden in such a way that the Valley of Dry Bones is actually the anti-Eden. The Valley of Dry Bones shows us what happens When the people of God continually go through cycles of sin and destruction and bloodshed and murder, which is what's been happening, unfortunately, for the people of Israel for two to three hundred years leading up to the book of Ezekiel. Now, a couple of themes that hopefully show you that this this Eden imagery is actually in the background of the Valley of Dry Bones. The first is the fact that it's a valley. If you remember, throughout the Old Testament, the place that people meet with God is where? It's on a mountain, Mount Zion, Mount Sinai. Going back even farther, Noah, when he lands after being in the ark, he lands on a mountain. And, of course, the ark is a little temple. It's got three parts, and it's God saving a remnant of what? Humans and animals. Well, what did humans and animals do? They lived together in the garden. The garden, of course, was surrounded in a certain way, with water, because God put the land together. So people think of Eden even as a mountain. And of course, God meets with his people. God meets with his people 
on mountains throughout the Old Testament, but then, but then also in the New Testament. And so when we think about the, the mountains, we have this opposite imagery of the valley. It's an intentional picture that God is giving us of the opposite of the place where you meet with God. Now, in addition to that, when you think of Eden, in Genesis 2, water is present. God is watering this garden. He's providing water so that life can occur. And the water eventually flows out of Eden into the whole earth. But what is it that we know about the Valley of Dry Bones? Well, it is very dry. Dry bones are bones that have been dead for a very long time. Water, of course, was present in Eden so that Eden could grow. And then on the opposite side of that, we've got this picture of a valley full of dry bones. Well, it continues. We've got a clean space in Eden. Eden was ceremonially clean. It was where God could dwell with his people. There was no sin. There was no impurity. There was no evil, of course, until the serpent entered. It was a clean space, a clean space that God could dwell in. And then on the opposite side of that, what is the valley of dry bones full of? It's full of bones. Bones are the thing in the the old covenant that would signify that you are ceremonial and clean. You've touched a corpse. You've been around something that is unclean. If, If you are a priest, you cannot touch dead bodies. You cannot touch bones or else you would have to go through this ritual of ceremonial cleansing. Well, it continues. The, the, the presence of God is lacking in the valley. Of course, God is there showing Ezekiel the vision, but there is no spirit there for the bones to come back to life. We're going to get into the passage, but I want to show you this broad stroke so that you can see Ezekiel is purposely structuring his valley of dry bones so that when, when you read it, knowing the story of Genesis 1 and 2, you think, oh, this is the opposite of Eden. This is the anti-Eden. This is what happens when sin reigns, not just in the world, but in the people of God. Well, the reason that's important for the book of Matthew, for the book of Matthew, which it doesn't have to be important for the book of Matthew, but it happens to be. It's because the, the main theme that we've been studying during the book of Matthew is that Jesus Christ has come to rule and bless the nations in God's new creation. You, you may not remember that, that saying, but that's how I summarized the entire book of Matthew. Jesus Christ has come to rule and bless all the nations in God's new creation. Hopefully you can see why Ezekiel 37 and Genesis 1 and 2 matter to the story of Matthew. The story of Ezekiel is is in a certain way a bridge between the gospel of Matthew and Eden. It shows the need for the gospel of Matthew. This picture of this valley of dry bones. So I hope you're, you're at least willing to consider the idea that Ezekiel is a Uh, is showing us a picture of what happens to the world uh, when sin runs rampant, when people continually reject God, and not just people, but the covenant people continue to reject God. The reason it's about the covenant people is because this is the story of exile. The covenant people were carried off into exile in 597 B.C. by Babylon. 
How? They didn't all get carried off. Uh, only the, 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 the thought leaders, only the priests, only the people who could make uh, more tools, more weapons, basically all of the intelligentsia, you might say, they all got carried off to Babylon. And the people who were left were those who couldn't uh, start an uprising. Uh, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, knew, oh, well, if we take away all of the leaders, the people who might be rabble-rousers who try and start a revolution, if we take all of them away and we indoctrinate them into Babylonian worldviews and Babylonian worship, then eventually, yeah, we can have some of the less influential people stay behind and, you know, we'll see how it goes. So Ezekiel is there at, in Babylon He's sitting next to a river, chapter 1 tells us, and he's in exile, and he's a part of all of the the thought leaders of of the people of of Israel, that is, of Judah, the the southern kingdom, and eventually he starts to prophesy. Now, 597, they get carried off. This is some some details, but it's, it's somewhat important. 597, he gets carried off, but then roughly five years later, he starts to prophesy. And he starts to tell the people about how sinful they are. And he does that for essentially 25 chapters. He rebukes Israel, telling them that the reason they are in exile, the reason they're out of Eden, the reason they're away from the presence of God, is because of their sin. The sin of the people of God is why they're in exile. This is a story of exile. And then he rebukes the nations. Roughly 25 to 32, he rebukes the nations and tells them about their sin. But then he hears, he hears in 586 that Jerusalem has been destroyed. He hears in 586 that Jerusalem has has been utterly destroyed. And he changes his tone. He changes his message. He goes from rebuking the people, warning them that they can't just rest on these covenant promises that God has given them and think they don't have to exercise any faith or any obedience. You don't get to just... Assume that God will always bless you even though you never respond and even though you act sinfully. You don't get to choose that. God will eventually discipline you. He warns them for 32 chapters about that. And then once the destruction happens, once the destruction happens, chapter 33 to 48 is a picture of hope. It's a picture of hope and restoration. Once the people realize that God is serious about disciplining them, In Ezekiel 1 through 32, and then the destruction happens, Ezekiel changes his tune and starts to prophesy about hope. Now there's imagery throughout 33 through 48, I encourage you to read it, that's important to the story of the Old Testament and it's important to the imagery that Jesus picks up on because of the promises of the new David, the promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the restoration of God's presence, but Right there in the middle, in 37, is the Valley of Dry Bones. The Valley of Dry Bones. Now, if we were preaching through the whole book of Ezekiel, I wouldn't have needed to do all of that overview. But hopefully you're you're caught up on the whole book of Ezekiel now. Our chapter now, 37, 1 through 14, gives us the most vivid imagery for the resurrection, I believe you'll find maybe in the whole whole Bible. The, The vision can be broken into three parts. The vision can be broken into three parts. If you're looking uh, in your 
your handout, you'll see the printout, or if you're, you're reading, you can see it in your pew Bible as well. 37, 1 through 14. The verses 1 and 2 are what we're going to call the setting. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a narrative, and so we're going to look at it uh, through the lens of, of, of story. So 1 and 2 is the setting, where we learn what's happening and where they are. And then 3 through 10 is a dialogue. It's a dialogue, as you might expect, between Ezekiel and the Lord, but it's also a dialogue between the Lord and these bones. The Lord is dialoguing with Ezekiel on one hand, but he's also, he's also talking to the bones on the other hand. And so we've got a dialogue there in 3 through 10, and then 11 through 14, the application of this dialogue for the people of Israel. The application of this dialogue for the, for the people of Israel. And what we're going to take away from these, these three movements is that the hope of the resurrection gives strength for the exile. That's our main point tonight. The hope of the resurrection gives strength for the exile. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not in Babylon right now. Uh, so this is a nice lesson about the past. But actually, exile is a bigger theme in the Old and the New Testament, than you might suspect. In a lot of ways, we, as the people of God, people who have chosen to follow Jesus as he has called us to do, are still in exile. And we're not in exile because of our personal sin, in a certain sense, because we know that sin has been atoned for at the cross. But we are in exile because this cosmos, this world that God has created, which he created so that he could live with his people, is still fragmented. Heaven and earth have not merged as Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. He, he's asking that it would be as on earth as it is in heaven. And the realms of heaven and earth have yet to merge visibly in this world in a way that we long for. And because of that, we are still separated from the presence of God in a visible way. We're still visibly separated from the presence of God. Yes, we have the spirits, but we aren't seeing God the way that that Adam and Eve were dwelling with God in the garden. And when Jesus returns, we know we will see God. And we will see him and we will be like him. And so that's only to set up this idea that we are still, in many ways, living in exile. We know that this is not our home. We are looking for a better city. We are looking for a better country. We are looking for something better. The book of Hebrews tells us over and over and over again that we are to be looking for something better. And why is that? Because this world is is fading away and we are still in exile. And so the lesson that the people at the time of Ezekiel learned from this story is that the hope of the resurrection gives strength for the exile. It gave them strength for their exile and it will give us strength for our exile. So the hope of the resurrection gives strength for the exile. That's our main point. Let's now look at the setting, verses one and two, where we see this established. Ezekiel is recording this story, and maybe some of the scribes that were around him are also recording the story. And he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. Now, this is to signify that he is having a vision. The hand of the Lord is upon him, and he was brought out by the spirits. Now, we know that God doesn't have a hand. 
This is anthropomorphic language to give us an idea about God interacting directly in the life of Ezekiel to take him into some sort of supernatural valley. You might say it's, it's a space between heaven and earth, if you were to try and conceptualize where it is. Now, I don't mean geographically between heaven and earth. I mean, I mean spiritually between heaven and earth. The Lord takes him and sets him down in the middle of the valley. And what do we learn about this valley? Remember, we're, we're looking at setting. We're trying to understand what this story is about and how it's unfolding. It was full of bones. Now, if you remember, Ezekiel's a priest. He just showed up to a place of death. And he can't be comfortable. But what happens? The Lord led me around, he says in verse 2. He's having to, to tour the bones. He's having to walk around, essentially, in a graveyard, except the bones aren't in graves. And what does he say? Behold, there were very many bones upon bones on the surface of the valley. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine. Some, sometimes we see these, these pictures after a massacre of dead bodies, or we see these pictures after a genocide of all the bones, and it's horrifying. Right, there's a, a church in the Czech Republic actually that's built out of bones. It's terribly grotesque. But bones are signifying, of course, death, but not just death. The end of verse 2, the setting, what, what we're trying to press home, what the passage is pressing home is that, that this is a place of, of death, and it's been dead for a long time. Behold, they were very dry. If the bones still had flesh on them, they might still, in some sense, have some sort of liquid. Uh, but these bones have, have fully decomposed, and all that's left is the skeleton. They are very dry. You can see, as I mentioned, this is the anti-Eden. This is the opposite of the place of life. This is the opposite of the place where God who is overflowing life in himself, dwells. And he's showing him this picture in many ways to show him what the, people's, the people are experiencing him, what the people's life is like, what their spiritual life is like, but also what their physical life is like. They are political refugees. An army came to their city, Jerusalem, and besieged them. And as happens always, when a foreign power besieges another city, there's murder, there's rape, there's pillaging. Horrific things have happened to these people before they got carted off to another land. Horrific things. And now they're living in this foreign land, even though their God promised them that they would dwell in the land of milk and honey. They're wondering what's happened. Where has our God gone? They are a people of despair. They are a people of utter despair. And Ezekiel's vision signifies that. It symbolizes that through all of these bones. The author makes it explicitly clear. There are a lot of bones. Well, that's the setting. When we think about our own experience in this exile, I imagine some of us resonate with the imagery of bones. As some of us feel the exile that we are in away from God's presence, longing for his presence. And if you're honest, your spiritual life and maybe your life in general feels like a valley of dry bones. And if it is, the God, God sent a word to people 
in your shoes, and he sends you this word tonight. Why? To give you hope. This passage is a passage about hope. It starts with death, but it does not end there. The first movement of the passage is a movement of death, but then God starts to interact with death. He starts to talk to death. He starts to dialogue with death through his prophet. And of course, that's section 3 through 10, the dialogue. If you turn there, the Lord said to me, that is Ezekiel narrating, the Lord said to me a question. The dialogue begins with a question from Yahweh to the prophet. And what does he ask him? Can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel is not like Peter. (laughs) Some of you remember Peter just keeps saying the wrong thing over and over again. And we kind of love him for it. We think, man, that's kind of the question I was thinking. I'm glad Peter asked it. And yet Ezekiel gives the right answer here. Oh, Lord God, you know. It's like he doesn't take the bait. Uh, Can these bones live? Uh, God, you are the one who dictates life. You are the one in control of whether anything comes to life. Not to mention bones that are incredibly dry in all of these bones. So can they live? I I guess, Lord, it's, it's completely up to you. And then we go into a command. God responds to Ezekiel's response and tells him to speak to the bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. God is speaking to the bones. He says, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Now remember, what was the animating object of life in Eden? It was breath. Before there was life in Eden, before the humans were created in Eden, they lacked breath. They were just clay. And then what happened? Breath came. And so this is echoing Eden, but not as much the anti-Eden, but now the new Eden. It's starting the recreation process. How? Through God's word. The Lord is dialoguing with death. He is talking to death and he is telling death that the spirit is going to come. He is saying to the bones, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He is speaking to the presence of death, the presence, you might say, of the curse. If you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. He is speaking to our greatest enemy. And what is he doing? He is sending his spirit to it. He is sending his spirit to our despair by his word. That's what's happening to their exile. And it's what's happening to our exile. By the word, through the spirit, God is sending hope to them and to us. What happens? Verse 6, in this Command, he says, I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. What's happening? They're slowly coming back to life. I will put breath in you and you shall live and then you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel responds, verse seven, he obeys. So I prophesy. Now the dialogue continues. It's now Ezekiel and The bones, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. It's as though things have been quiet, but Ezekiel is speaking to these bones 
and the sound is rattling. It's a knocking of hard things together. What is it? You can only imagine Ezekiel's thinking, is it, is it working? It, I mean, I know I gave the right answer. Only you know, Lord. But if, if Ezekiel is a human, which he is, he had to be in shock. It's working. This vision is showing him that there is hope for the people in despair. In chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife died. He's experienced He's experienced this trauma of sin and exile just as much as the next person. And he hears the bones start to rattle. You can only imagine what hope might have started to fill Ezekiel. He's moving from only you know, O Lord, to wow, it's happening. It's happening right here in front of me. And the bones came together bone to bone. And I looked, there was sinews on them and flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. It's as though he's thinking, it's, this is it. It's working. It's working. And then, but there was no breath. There was no breath. It was corpses. They had gone from, from very dry bones, death, to now dry bones that are put back together, sinews and flesh and skin. It is as though these are resembling exactly what existed in the garden when God took the dirt and he formed man. But what was lacking? Breath. There was no breath. Verse 9, after the conflict of there being no breath, he gets another command. Another command. Prophesy to the breath. (laughs) Prophesy. Say to the breath, Thus says Yahweh God, come from the four winds, that is, come from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, come everywhere, spirit of God, spirit of the living God, come. You have a problem, Ezekiel? Let's solve it. There's no breath, call for the breath, call for it from everywhere and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come that they may live, that they may have life. The hope of the resurrection gives strength for the exile. Because as they're hearing this prophecy and they're thinking, wow, I mean, that would be awesome. They're emboldened to think, wait, God hasn't abandoned us? We're here in Babylon? We're next to the the Kabar Canal, experiencing utter despair, wondering if God has abandoned us. People we know have been killed. Ezekiel's thinking about his wife. Death is everywhere, as these bones signify. And all of a sudden, the Lord is bringing life into their exile. He is promising them that there will come a day when death will not reign, when exile will not be their setting. And instead, they will be restored, what? To a new Eden, a new creation. How is that going to happen? How is it that they are going to begin to have life by the Spirit of, the, of God working through the Word? By the Spirit of God working through the Word. That's how they are seeing God reanimates dead bones. 
It applies to us because we know this is what God's word does all the time. Genesis 1, let there be light and there was light. How was the world created by God's word? Lazarus in the tomb. How was Lazarus brought out of the tomb? Jesus didn't go in and do CPR. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Isaiah 55 promises us God's word will not return void. It will accomplish that for which it was sent. This is a vivid picture of how we live in hope during exile. We realize that the spirit of God works through the word of God. And what does it do? It puts flesh on our death. Our experience of brokenness. Perhaps our sin or perhaps the way others have sinned against us. We need the healing power of the word by the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. That's who the Holy Spirit is, the third person of the Trinity, the Lord and giver of life, to work through the word to do what? To put flesh back on us, but not just flesh, to put life where we experience death. And in our despair, and in our fear, and in our longing, It is so challenging to believe that this is true. But these people were living in a practical exile. This was their life. They were refugees. And this was what they received from God. Promises about the resurrection delivered through the word by the spirits. If it's what they needed, sitting next to this canal in Babylon... Wondering if God had abandoned them. Surely it's what we need. Surely it's what we need. The hope of the resurrection. That is the proclamation of the gospel. The hope of the resurrection gives strength for your exile. Your little pile of bones that you don't know what to do with. We all have one. Well, this section of dialogue comes to an end. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they live and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Perhaps these were some of the people that Ezekiel knew were killed by the Babylonians. Perhaps he sees some of his friends come back to life in this image. The hope of the resurrection gives strength. Well, now the application for the people during that time, the application, 11 through 14. The Lord is still speaking to Ezekiel, and he says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They're not just this army. He expands the concept beyond just the army. They're the whole house of Israel. You could even think all of the 12 tribes, not just the southern tribes, the whole house of Israel. And what, are the whole, what is the whole house of Israel doing? It's saying something. It's the second half of verse 11. The Lord says, behold, they, that is Israel, says, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. Indeed, we are cut off. And the human nature that we feel is exactly the same that they felt. Our hope 
is lost. Indeed, we are cut off. This was covenant language, being cut off from the land of the living, cut off from the presence of God. This is what they're saying. This is what the whole house of Israel is saying. Our bones are dried up. We are dead. This is the conclusion of the people of Israel, you might say, in the refugee camp. What are the rumors? Everybody's hopeless. What's going around when people are are talking in their tents there in the refugee camp? God must have cut us off. He must have abandoned us. I guess his promises weren't really true after all, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. I, I guess that's what's happening. And Yahweh knows that's what they're saying. So he says, you know, they're talking about how hopeless they are, which is what we do. We talk to each other about our hopelessness. We, we don't come out and say it. I am hopeless. If we did, that would be too honest and someone would be able to encourage us. So we hide it. We hide our hopelessness. We're deceptive about our despair. And perhaps we might imitate them and say our hope is lost just to be honest with the Lord so that he might speak directly into that situation because he does. He says to them, thus says the Lord, I'm in verse 12, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. It's as though the the very thing that they were saying was true. He reverses it. You're hopeless. I'm going to send you back to the land. You have death, I'm going to raise you from your graves. He expands not just the valley of bones, but he's talking about the whole house of Israel now. So he's talking about graves. Everyone, not just the army, everyone is going to be raised, he's saying. And what does he call them as he's giving this address? Oh, my people. Yahweh is talking to his exiles, his sinful rebels, His people that he drove away from his presence. Why? Because of the blood on their hands. He couldn't stand it anymore. So he had to drive them away to teach them a lesson. So he sends Babylon to bring them into exile. But what does he call them in exile? He calls them, oh, my people. And what does he do to them in exile? He visits them. He shows up. If you look at chapter 1, that chariot of God's presence, the temple moves. (laughs) From Jerusalem to the exile. And it shows up there for them in exile. And he's calling them, oh my people. The application of this, of course, for them is that the hope of the resurrection gives strength. It's meant to strengthen them. But not just this abstract concept of hope. Hope that God is their God. And he is saying to each of us tonight, oh my people. Those of us who have decided to put our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is saying to you, oh, my child, oh, my daughter, oh, my son. He is saying to us collectively, oh, my people. And as this word comes to us more and more and more, what will happen? Verse 13, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves And raise you from the graves, O my people. Now for them, this would have specifically had to do with their restoration to the land. They, They are restored to the land, which is how the lineage of Jesus ultimately continues. So there is a fulfillment of this directly in their restoration to the land. But we know that that 
the total resurrection of the people of God hasn't happened. And so this prophecy gets fulfilled in stages. This prophecy gets fulfilled first through them returning to the land, but then it it gets fulfilled with God returning in the flesh, the incarnation. The Spirit coming upon the Virgin and God dwelling with his people. What is his name? Emmanuel, God with us. The Spirit coming and the second person of the Trinity dwelling as a fulfillment of this. How? He comes to bring resurrection power. Now what are the people of the resurrection supposed to do? They're supposed to put their hope in the resurrection, which is why Jesus in Matthew says over and over again, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is another way of saying hope in the resurrection. Anyone who takes up his cross for the sake of Christ will find his life. He will be resurrected. The spirit of God will come in him. His dry bones will be put back together and he will dwell with God forever. She will dwell with God forever. The hope of the resurrection gives strength for the exile. It's been true in the Old Testament. It's true, obviously, as it's becoming fulfilled through the life of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, and then ultimately through his second coming. We now, as I've said, are still in exile, longing for that second coming. So this passage to people in Babylon in the 6th century BC, in many ways, is, is, is not about us. It's about the nation of Israel fighting a geopolitical battle, not knowing what to do with themselves during their season of refugee status. But at the same time, it is entirely about us because it is about the people of God longing for more of the presence of God. Because that's what this passage is about. The people of God longing for more of the presence of God. It is entirely our situation. And as we wait, as we hope for that glorious day, when we will have bodies like Christ's body, when, as we hope for that resurrection, he gives us strength for the exile by his word and his spirit coming and increasingly bringing life to our little pile of bones that we don't know what to do with. We all have our little pile. We all have a big pile. And we all have bones we don't even know about. But verse 14 is what happens to us as we increasingly bring that to God. He says, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And we know that is the land of the new creation, ultimately, where all of the promises of God's land ultimately find their fulfillment. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. We can rest in this promise. Spoken to them, now spoken to us. The hope of the resurrection gives strength for our exile today. Let's pray. Gracious God, we plead that you would, by your word and spirit, give us hope for this exile and place our hope not in things that are going to go away but place our hope Lord uh, as, 
as much as we resist it, place our hope in the resurrection where we will see you, Father. We will see Jesus. We will see the Holy Spirit in some way. We don't know mysteriously how that will happen, God, but we know that we will see you. Give us a hope for that day, we pray. Amen.